Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today grew up in Norfolk and spent her gap year not travelling the world, but working for a Conservative MP. She went on to become one herself, entering Parliament in 2009 as the baby of the House. She was soon promoted in 2011 when she was appointed Economic Secretary to the Treasury. That stint saw a rather memorable political interview with Jeremy Paxman, that we shall go into some detail of later. Since then, she has worked across a range of briefs and was promoted to Minister of State in the Cabinet Office in February, now leading the government's work on the Constitution. My guest today is Chloe Smith. So thank you for joining us today. We are recording at a socially distanced distance, it doesn't quite work, in the Spectator office and it's nice to finally be off some of these Zoom recordings we've been doing over lockdown. On this podcast we like to begin by talking a little bit about your early life before the career, which we we know you for. So you grew up in Norfolk and one question we tend to ask everyone on this podcast is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yes, I definitely would. I was uh, I was extremely lucky to have a loving family, two wonderful parents. Uh, my father was a furniture maker and designer, uh, and my mum was a teacher uh, of textiles. So quite a lot of arts in my household, actually, and and lots of uh, lots of wonderful experiences around that. Growing up with my my big brother, and we had a yeah, we had a very very happy childhood. And was politics discussed much uh, when you were growing up? Because as I mentioned, you spent your gap year working for a Conservative MP. So I'm presuming that wasn't just by chance, you were interested in politics and specifically the Conservative Party from an early age? Well, I was, um, I mean, a couple of things maybe on, on, on this. So so I was generally generally interested in politics and in the world around me and in a very gentle way, you know, my parents were interested in politics. I remember talking a lot with my dad about things as, as I grew up. Uh, and I distinctly remember doing, during my French A-level, doing uh, one of the uh, those oral exam sessions um, and talking about the merits of the European Union in French uh, at A-level. Uh, so, so definitely a bit of politics uh, early on then. And I think at that point I was a, a sound Eurosceptic, uh, which, uh, which uh, one way or another has, has, has stayed. But also I was actually very lucky to get to know my own local MP at a, at a relatively early age, uh, she um, met me whilst I was at school and I think I was very lucky to have one of those MPs who is on the lookout for how they can support young constituents which is something I now try and do I really like that idea of being able to do for others what I was very lucky to have done with me so Gillian Shepherd was was that MP now Baroness Shepherd and she stayed a real role model and, and mentor for me all the way through actually so so through that relationship I was lucky enough to to see a bit of politics and I started working with other young people in in Norfolk to try to set up a youth forum and really that was the starting point it was that realization that actually you can do things if you get together and you can change things and there are lots of plenty of things about growing up in Norfolk that you might want to change as a grumpy teenager um, but also that there was a way to do that perhaps with looking ahead to to aspiring to be a member of parliament. So at what point did you decide you wanted to be an MP yourself? You worked us in the gap year you also worked for Bernard Jenkin and you spent some time working for Deloitte so when did you think actually I want to I want to do this well as I say with with the those opportunities in my in my teens I think the seed was firmly planted and and it took a little time to grow so so whilst I went off to to start my career in the private sector and I was determined to get a breadth of experience I thought that was very important early on 
uh, and, I, and I still do, and I would certainly give that as advice to anyone wanting to go into politics, make sure you get other experience as well. Um, during that, David Cameron became the leader of the Conservative Party, and if you remember, he put out the call and said, we need more people on our candidates list, we need more women, and I actually thought, right, okay, that could be me. Uh, so I put my hand up and, uh, and, and, and gave it a go. You entered Parliament in a by-election when the Labour MP Ian Gibson was standing down. What is it like? Because often with by-elections, in a way, it's even more intense than a general election because people aren't just focusing on, you know, XXX number of candidates, all attention's on you. So was that surprising? Yeah, that's definitely right. By-elections are very strange things and really intense. You you suddenly realise that the world's media has pitched up on your doorstep. I can distinctly remember the day after that election doing an in- interview with, with international media from a truck out the back of the World Norfolk showground. Uh, and, and you just think, wow, you know, this life has changed. So yeah, that's right. I mean, the feeling of a by-election then at that particular time was also quite intense because if you remember it was the height of the MP's expenses time so you could almost say actually that I was elected as a direct result of that because my predecessor stood down you know with, with, with allegations over his head and for me that's that's actually just been the start of an extraordinary decade of elections if you think about it that's five elections in 10 years so I'm ple- pleased to say I've got a pretty robust political record of having you know taken a seat off Labour and then beat them again four times since uh, but that's that's perhaps too many elections for anybody. Yeah well the last time I saw you it was during an election and we were visiting Norwich to interview the Prime Minister and I think you, you kind of gave James Forsyth and I a lift and I think therefore stopped us um, from having to stand in the rain for hours because we couldn't master the taxi system. <laughs> well I mean that's that's a brilliant venue in Norwich I'm pleased that you were able to see it. When you arrived in Parliament what surprised you? not much because you'd already spent time there working for MPs well it's true that I'd had I'd had the the chance to see a little of it beforehand but I think I mean I think that the point about becoming an MP is that you have the chance to set your own path and you have the chance to you know articulate how you're going to do that for your constituents and for me it's always been very important actually to be able to talk about what you're doing for your constituents and have them being able to you know to, to hold you to account for it and, and actually, since that, that first by-election, that's always been a thing I've done at elections. I've said, right, here's what I'm going to do, and you can hold me to account for it. And I think other MPs in our party used a bit of that afterwards from that context. So even if you have the chance to see a little bit of Parliament before you're elected, there is nothing like that personal accountability that then comes. And that's always been incredibly important to me. And, and in some ways has, has um, then been what I've taken forward into my, my great interest in the Constitution, because it's a real foundation piece, isn't it, that, you know, that MPs have that responsibility to their constituents, and then you come together and you make the whole from that. Now, you were the baby of the House when you entered Parliament. Does that mean that you had lots of people trying to give you advice on how to master, you know, wise older MPs? Well, I mean, the really notable thing, actually, it must be said, is that at that time, I was very much younger than everyone else in my party. So if you think about that, it was so just before you the 2010 were... election. I was 27. I, I remember a conversation with, you know, people like uh, Justine Greening or Stephen Crabb, who, if I remember rightly, were the next youngest. Uh, <laughs> but even that's a 10 year age gap. And, and actually, you know, it was challenging being standing out like a store, like a sore thumb is, you know, is, is, is sometimes difficult. It's not stopped me saying to other young people, 
come into politics. You know, there is a place for young people in politics and we have to have everyone from all walks of life in that place because otherwise it doesn't work. It's not representative. So there's totally a place for young people. Um, I think personally I found it, you know, on on reflection, a little challenging doing all that quite young. And you were promoted pretty quickly. So first in the Whip's office and then Economic Secretary to the Treasury. So you were the youngest minister also. At the time when you when you got the promotion, The Guardian said that it was because David Cameron believed you were a trained accountant. Is, is there any truth in that? How did the conversation go when you got the job? <laughs> well, the conversation took place in... Uh, in fact, it was another rainy car park anecdote. The conversation took <laughs> place uh, outside the school where I was a school governor. I had been in a school governor meeting in my constituency for about three hours that afternoon <laughs> and unable to take the call. And I was aware that my handbag was sort of, you know, buzzing. And, and I'm afraid I, to say I got out much later and then was, you know, late returning a call. But, um, but, but I was... I mean, I was really pleased to be given that opportunity because... Um, you know, it's a chance to contribute in in a whole different way. And and looking back on it, actually, I mean, to have had, you know, essentially a decade of ministerial experience in across all those departments means that I'm able to to look now with a, a sort of a you know much more experienced eye and and to know what I want to do in this role and to how I want to make a difference. Uh, and you 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 in some cases you can only get that through experience. But I'm really pleased actually to you know to to have had that starting point and then to be able to be where I am now. Now, I just want to talk briefly about an incident that often comes up in conversation when you think about that period in your career. You were sent out uh, onto the airwaves uh, by the then-Chancellor George Osborne to defend plans to delay uh, a rise to the fuel duty. And one of the interviews you gave was to Newsnight and to Jeremy Paxman. And this is a segment from it. Do you ever wake up in the morning and think, my God, what am I going to be told today? I wake up in the morning and know actually that some of my constituents will really value not having to pay that little bit more on fuel prices come August because the cost of living is pretty tight at the moment. And everybody does know that. I do think this move today is valuable. It's not just a Westminster Village story, Jeremy. It's real money in real people's pockets. Oh, we all understand that. Good. You ever think you're incompetent? I think it's valuable to help real people in this way, and I do think that is valued Mm. by people who drive. Okay, Chloe Smith, thank you. Now, that interview was described in various quarters, uh, you know, as a a car crash, um, uncomfortable to watch, but also, um, I think probably moving on further, it created a, a row to a degree in your own party with some Tory MPs voicing anger at the Chancellor and uh, the government for putting you in that position and sending someone in quite a junior ministerial role to such a, a difficult media outing. So I just wanted, I suppose, first off, I mean, what is it like suddenly being in this engulfing media storm, uh, which I presume you obviously have no sense it's coming when you first agree to do these things. Well, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a very straightforward kind of player, to be honest, and actually very much a team player. And, I, you know, I was, I was more than happy to, you know, to pull my, pull my weight and, and, and go out and talk on my brief. But the fact is, it was a, that was a pretty difficult day. And, you know, you think about the humans behind those headlines and actually, you know, there's, there's a bad day. There's what comprises a bad day. Um, on a lighter note, uh, you can picture me the next day trying to explain to my mother what trending on Twitter actually means, and uh, I think uh, I think uh, <laughs> we all we all learned a few things that week. But on a much more long-term note, that whole episode has taught me more than a thing or two about being pushed around and how not to do that anymore. 
In what sense? Because, for example, Paxman said afterwards, he, he came to your defence degree and he's, he criticised senior governments for allowing your career to be wrecked. Now, the fact you're doing this podcast, but also, I mean, you've had, you're, you have a very senior uh, ministerial job right now. I mean, clearly history has shown that to be different. But in the sense of kind of um, what you say yes to doing or positions you're willing to put, how has it, I suppose, improved you as a politician going through that? Well, you'd have to take strength from, as I said earlier, knowing what you're intending to do in a job and going out and doing a great job in that. I mean, bluntly, you know, look, this many years on, I don't really care what Jeremy Paxman thinks, uh, nor anyone else thinks from that time. I have so many other better things in my life uh, and so many more enjoyable things to think about. And great uh, podcast to go on. In, so. Indeed, Katie, exactly that. So, you know, really <laughs> ancient history. And moving on from that, so... You have that period where it obviously is a difficult thing, though, because lots of people are writing you off to a degree and then you stay in your role, but you step back from ministerial career around 2013, am I right? And at that point, did you want to focus on being a backbench MP? What at that point is going through your mind? Well, to adapt a phrase, I wanted to take back control and to to make sure that I knew what I was doing in my in, in my career and in my work. And I... And, and, as I said at the time, very much the case that I also wanted to focus on my constituency and make sure that I was doing the right things there. I was launching a, uh, a really big project, which actually has turned out to be a, a great success, which is called Norwich for Jobs, which was about getting thousands of young people into work. And in fact, right now, with all the new elements of the employment market, we're going to have to look again at that project and how we can do that same kind of trick again. So things in my constituency, in fact, you know, took a, took a, a priority and, and that, that's as it should be. But uh, no, since then, I mean, I've been, you know, I was, I was keen to return to, to, to front bench service. Which did in 2017. Uh, which, yeah, which, uh, which, uh, which came around again. So was able to add to, add to my experience with the Northern Ireland office and then a return to the, the constitutional brief. I mean, after the Treasury... I uh, went to the cabinet office and in fact did this role for the first time uh, then 2012-2013 so so I've actually been the minister for Const- the constitution across three administrations which is a depth of experience that I think not many others necessarily have and I'm and I'm pleased to have and it's obviously a topic you're very passionate about for listeners who are not au fait with the constitution could you you got promoted to minister of state in in that role in February by the prime minister Boris Johnson who you backed can you explain to listeners what your job entails? <laughs> because I think it's one of the slightly more mysterious jobs in government compared to some things that, such as being you know, an education minister. Well, of course. I mean, I mean, the constitution is a thing that is often, you know, just there but never, never seen much or heard about. And and in many ways, that's how it should be because it's the thing that enables everyone else to get on with their lives and get on with their their uh, choices. And you know, in my vision. A strong constitution means that you can have a strong economy because people can take their choices, take their opportunities, have their jobs, make their make their way in the world. It's a it's a an enabling thing, and 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 I think that's extremely important. If you add it up to its highest level, actually, it's also a thing that is part of Britain's reputation in the world. You know, if we get it right, we have a very sound global reputation. If we get it wrong, less so. And and you can see that, uh, you know, in perhaps in some of the politics in in recent years when you have instability. So. The Constitution is a, an incredibly important foundation piece, and I take a lot of a lot of passion from that. 
The driving pieces in the brief today, the driving forces in the brief today, include strengthening the union, clear manifesto commitment from us, which we're, we're, we're working um, very hard on and, and actually has just had a really good uh, a really good exhibition, if you like, through coronavirus, where we've had to work together as the four nations of the UK. Uh, and I hope, um, you know, I, I hope we've done that well. Also, I oversee all elections policy and democracy, which, again, is, is one of these re- massively important foundation pieces and then uh, thirdly I have uh, all sorts of sort of esoteric things in the constitution for example relationships with the with the palace and 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 some of the the very much more you know arcane elements of our constitution that that also need to be stewarded uh, and taken care of but indeed also have been brought to the fore by our politics most recently I mean you see in our manifesto a number of commitments actually to strengthening those elements of our constitution that together come back again to giving people, you know, a stable foundation on which we can build all sorts of other things. In terms of devolution, and I think you mentioned the union, is interesting because in coronavirus, we have seen in some quarters a case being made that actually we're seeing the union not moving together because in different parts of the UK, lockdowns being eased at different rates. In Scotland, they, in many ways, are going slower. And you've had some headlines, you know, saying if you're English, you shouldn't be crossing the border, um, you know, depending on the lockdown rules for those things. So there is an argument that actually is accentuating those differences. I was wondering, do you think there's a risk that coronavirus is weakening the union? Yes, I mean, I think I think the I think the whole experience of the last three months has has really brought home how we need to work together as the nations of the of the UK, and and a, a proof point of that would be right up at the level of, for example, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, where you've got the chief medical officers of all the countries, all the nations uh, working working closely together for the good of the whole, and and below that, there's been levels upon levels of of really good working together, which I'm very proud of, and you, and you perhaps wouldn't see that on the surface. But but this is a this is a reminder actually of 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 the fact that in many cases in politics there's an awful lot of good work going along behind the scenes that that you know wouldn't wouldn't always get reported by uh, by the good class of journalists uh, that we that from we, when they come up on podcasts <laughs> except for podcasts. Um, so so there's a kind of a depth of there's a depth of work there. But but what it's also reminded us of course as well actually is that what we what we now need to focus on is how we have prosperity across the country as we come out of coronavirus uh, you know and its consequences and that is going to mean working together afresh in further ways to make sure that actually citizens and businesses can 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 thrive and flourish across the country even where there are uh, you know rightly uh, allowances for for, for devolved power and, and decisions that ought to be made more locally just on strengthening the union There is an argument that's been made by some Scottish Conservative MPs, which is looking ahead to the Scottish Parliament elections, Holyrood um, 2021, presuming we are able to vote by then, (laughs) through coronavirus. Um, That was was my contribution to emergency legislation, by the way, actually, was was postponing elections (laughs) and go down in the history books with that one. If the SNP were to win a majority, there is an argument that has also been heard in some Conservative circles, it's not one everyone agrees with, that that would make it hard for the for Westminster to deny us a second independence referendum. What do you make of that? Do you think that has some merit? You know, if, if there is a majority for the SNP outright in those elections, do you think it increases or makes the argument stronger for a second independence referendum? I think many people will observe that it's probably not the argument that is right for now because 
of all the other pressures that are upon people. And uh, I'm absolutely sure that um, Nicola Sturgeon is as aware of this as anybody when she has to step up every day to the people of Scotland and answer about what really matters, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, what really matters, in the midst of all of the other challenges of government, what really matters. Uh, And I think people's answer to that is, well, actually, we want you to govern well for the people people of Scotland and to work with others around the United Kingdom to get it right for the whole country. And on top of that, I think you would add the argument that the decision had been looked at and taken before. If you look at the earlier referendum on Scottish independence, if you look at that, the decision was taken and it was acknowledged all around to be a once in a generation decision. And I think that still stands. So to get to the next generation. (laughs) And then just on voting, it's obviously a hot subject of debate at the moment. I think everyone saw the the conga line when MPs were sent back, um, which we've been told shouldn't be called a Jacob Rees-Mogg conga line, because although it was his conditions, it was the house authorities that came up with the specifics. There does, however, seem to be a reluctance in terms of what we're hearing from parts of government to have MPs voting remotely, you know, en masse. Lots of people wanted to keep the virtual parliament in place. And it seemed that one of the concerns amongst some Tories is that if you kept it in place for too long, it would set a precedent of more remote working. It could be widened out, you know, not just coronavirus. Do you think that some would say that means that... that there is a sense the Conservative Party is not modernising or modernising Parliament in, in remote voting. So I wondered, what do you make of that? Do you think that there should be more flexible voting? You um, made history, I think, as bringing the first Conservative MP to bring your, your child into the chamber. So where do you stand on these things? Because clearly there's so many competing demands for MPs these days. Lots of people do want it to become more flexible. I mean, I think, first of all, I, I would actually, I would reduce, I would take the party politics out of this. I don't, I don't think... Particularly, this is a, a Conservative Party issue. I think actually, genuinely, this is a cross-party issue at the moment because it's a, a question for how we run the the whole House of Commons, how all of us, you know, make, make the the House of Commons work. So, so I, I mean, I can observe from my from my own experience that actually we we've seen these issues before. This is, in fact, not the precedent. If you like, the real precedent was was perhaps the proxy voting scheme for baby leave. I mean, it's my view that uh, we should talk in terms of parents when we talk about shared parental leave rather than only mothers. Uh, so that might be a perhaps a future extension of, of that scheme. But the, the fact is that um, we do need, as I said earlier, to have Parliament being an attractive and welcoming and functional place for people from all walks of life. And that absolutely has to mean uh, young parents who have those particular caring responsibilities. But there are lots of other flavours of, of that debate as well. And I think so long as we're so long as we're clear in our principle that we've got to serve the country that we represent and we've got to be able to show some leadership in terms of being safely at a workplace. Uh, and that has been important, of course, in terms of coronavirus and people people making that gradual move back to back to workplaces. But also so that we can do our job. And so you've got to be able to have the means of scrutiny. You've got to be able to have the means of, of governing and all those functions of parliament. So I think I think Jacob has been correct in in, in leading the way back to back to, to to the workplace. But I do think there's probably an opportunity here to to learn some things about how we can continue to make sure that Parliament is open and showing common sense in in how we welcome welcome people from all walks of life. I just want to talk briefly about abuse in politics. You, uh, I think, I believe, were the victim of an anthrax scare. You sent a package of anonymous white powder. In your time in Parliament, quite a long time now, <laughs> do you think that the environment has got a lot more hostile towards MPs? Unfortunately, I think the answer to that has to be yes. And it's a real shame. The white powder instance actually was was 
probably harsher on my staff than on anybody else because my fantastic constituency staff had to literally stay locked in an office not moving for a day while that was investigated and that that's that's just a rough deal which is reflected in the sentence that that individual got but unfortunately other other abuse also exists I could give some other personal examples of of silly things that have happened in the constituency that I think don't do any credit to those who did them but but this is this is I'm afraid now a bit of a theme across uh, across politics and actually that's why as part of my role I've been doing work on how we can stand firm against intimidation of those in public life not just for politicians crucially also for voters voters and citizens need to know that politics is for them and that that is that is hindered not helped by politics being a if you like a violent or aggressive place so we have to show that politics works for voters so that they can cast their vote in peace and take their choice in peace i think i think unfortunately there is a uh, a sense that this uh, may affect uh, female MPs more than more than male. Uh, I mean, just for the record, I could add actually that I think I'm now one of the longest-serving Conservative women. I, I totted it up the, other, up the other day, and I think I'm the uh, seventh in line behind uh, some of my very much more long-standing um, female Conservative colleagues. But actually, that weight of experience, you know, is is there, and, I, and I'm fairly confident that together and across party, we can do our bit to try to make politics that positive place that we all know it needs to be. And then just final two things. When I was doing research for this, Clary, I saw that you proposed to your husband, which I think is one of the most ballsy things anyone in this podcast <laughs> has ever done. That might just <laughs> that might just be the, because I would ne- I like would never ha- quite had the gumption to do that. What, what what made you do that? Well, um, just a I mean, woman of your own destiny. <laughs> well, first of all, Katie, I mean, I, I hear that you you know you've not had the, the luck of the weddings this year, so I, I really feel for. I clearly should have just proposed <laughs> earlier on, and then I wouldn't have been stopped by coronavirus. Exactly. I'm I'm, I'm a very decisive person, and and, and in fact, uh, you know, once I'd met Sandy, I thought, right, this is this is the way to go, and didn't see any reason at all for waiting around on that, or for waiting for someone else to do a job for me that I could perfectly well do myself. So picture the scene it connects it connects up to a parliamentary anecdote actually I was uh, I was at uh, I was at Sandy's flat and um, and I decided uh, before leaving for the day in parliament I decided I would do this and I and I thought well there's no time like the present so I um I plucked up all my courage and said hmm shall we get married and he sort of looked at me and Yes, all right then. <laughs> and I then promptly trotted off and went into Parliament and took through a private member's bill on the floor of the House that Friday morning. <laughs> and um, by lunchtime, a late lunchtime after the parliamentary sitting hours, um, Sandy had found a ring and we reunited and did it properly. Uh, but uh, that, that was how that day planned out. So efficient. Also quite, I suppose, if the women proposes, then it's less of a faff in terms of organising the rings in advance uh, and things like this. And the final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, unfortunately, it probably is at the expense of my beloved old primary school head teacher, who was a wonderful man, but I think uh, had the idea that I wouldn't be able to play in the boys' football team from the primary school. Uh, and, I, and I think uh, he would agree uh, that I probably saw that challenge off and many more since he last knew me. <laughs> Thank you, Clay. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. 
go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.